together as we open uh, our time in the Word this morning. God, I I pray this morning uh, that you would arise in our lives. God, we thank you for the resurrection, and we believe this resurrection should change everything in our lives and in our world, and we've seen glimpses of this as your kingdom expands on this earth. God, we want to see it more and more. So God, would you align our hearts, would you align our lives with your future and with what you desire to see in this world, God? And we pray this morning, whatever you need to do to interrupt our lives, to, to change our hearts, God, to uh, cause us to be people of repentance or people who are encouraged walking out these doors, would you do it through your Spirit? Uh, this morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our lives. It's the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrated that the, the tomb is empty. And it was an exciting week in so many ways. Easter Sunday always is. But the question is, what comes after Easter, right? Because the truth is, the tomb's still empty. And our lives should be changed as a result of what's happened with Jesus on the cross and with the empty tomb. So this morning, I want to continue this series by talking about the resurrection, about what kind of life comes. But this morning, I want to focus especially on what comes after the Gospels. Because in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus is told. That story is a story about uh, all kinds of miracles and, and words that he speaks in messages. The story continues on in the book of Acts, which is the fifth book, and it tells the story of the early church, and the early church that lived through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of those people. And so this morning, I want to I basically walk through the book of Acts in the last 2,000 years in about 30 minutes, okay? So you're going to have to hang on a little bit this morning. But I'll get you out of here on time. No worries. Lunch, lunch will be on, on normal time today. Uh, and the resurrection of Jesus is the event that changes everything. And, and, and here's what I've seen when I, when I look at the church. When I read the book of Acts, there's a, exciting parts of this book that makes me think, I want to be a part of a church like that. I want to have an experience of the Holy Spirit that's interacting in our lives in such an amazing way. Don't you long for that? And yet there are moments when I look at the modern church, and I've experienced this church growing up, and I thought, these seem like very different things, <laughs> the experience that happens in the book of Acts. And so uh, this is what I've seen in terms of progression, because the resurrection does things in our lives. What I've seen in, in the ancient church is that resurrection basically brings about revolution in the early church. Everything changes. Everything's upturned because of Jesus rising from the dead. But more often than not in the modern church, when you look around at so many churches around, it seems like the resurrection actually leads to the status quo. And it should not be that way. Like This resurrection should be a doctrine that changes everything. But there have been critics of Christianity over the years that have basically called out the church and said, this is what we see in the modern church. And I think they're right in certain times that I've lived when, I've, when it's come to church. And so I, I look at the past, I look at what's going on. In fact, one of these critics was a guy named Karl Marx. And Karl Marx has this critique of Christianity. And you've heard this line before probably. He says that religion is the opiate of the masses. It's like, like religion is this drug that the upper classes and those in charge hand to those who are lower classes. Because the thought is if they have heaven to look forward to, then nothing has to change now because they have something to look forward to. So it's this tool of those who are in charge to keep things status quo. And if we think about the church in the past, can't we see that at times it's been that way? 
We've been maintainers of kind of how things are when what I believe God wants to do is He wants to upend it all. He wants to bring His kingdom, His reign of peace and righteousness and justice on the earth. And we're to be His stewards of that kingdom that He brings. So critics of Christianity will talk all day about all the bad things the church has been a part of. And, and we've got to start by confessing that, right? Like we, we've got skeletons in our closet. I mean, you've got the Inquisitions, and you've got the Thirty Years' War, and you've got the Crusades, and you've got modern movements when it comes to slavery and civil rights where the church did not stand up. But all through the midst of these transitions in culture, you've also had Christians that have been there to plant seeds that have been part of the change that's occurred. And this morning, I want to point to that story because I think the other story is told all too often, stories of our past. And, and we need to confess those things, repent of them. We don't deny the fact that the church has been involved in all kinds of harm in the world. But there's a lot of good, too. So this morning, I want you to leave knowing and, and feeling appreciative of all those who've been Christians, who have led their lives in the way of Jesus, and have lived this vision of revolution as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to encourage you to open to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, we happen upon a story where Paul, who's being transformed, was a, a former persecutor of Christians. He has this experience and. And he becomes a Christian himself, believes in the risen Lord. And Paul's traveling with a guy named Silas to a city named Thessalonica. Thessalonica has a bunch of believers who are are Jewish people who have believed in Jesus more as a prophet. They've never really taken on this resurrection and been able to handle that. And Paul and Silas go into Thessalonica, and they go into the synagogue, and they begin to tell these people, look, Jesus has been risen. And some of these people actually start to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. But if you're a Jewish leader and this is happening, it's not exactly good news, is it? These people are being transformed. They're believing in a Messiah. What does this mean for the future for our people? And so what's interesting is what happens. This is just your normal religious story, right? These uh, religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of that time in Thessalonica, they decide to gather up a a band of, as Scripture says, bad characters. Now, I, I would like to know what that group looks like. But they go to the local marketplace. They gather this group of bad, uh, bad characters to go and basically find Paul and Silas, drag them off to the city officials so they can put them on trial to stop all this nonsense that's going on as a result of the early church. So they show up and they don't find Paul and Silas, but they find a guy named Justin and they find his friends, some of these people who've been converted, and they drag, these bad characters drag them to the city officials to begin this trial and conversation about what happens next. Not exactly your normal religious story, right? But this is what happens, uh, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 6. And I, usually I read from the NIV from my scripture, but this morning I want to read from the NRSV version. I think it's a better translation of this passage. It says, when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, these people who've been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Now this morning I want to focus in on one of the passages, one of the translations of what it says there. He, he basically calls out these Christians, and what does he describe them as? He describes them as people who are turning the world upside down. Now when's the last time you got accused as a Christian of being somebody who turned the world upside down? Like that's a charge I'd love to hear about us more often, right? It's like they're turning the world upside down. They're flipping it right side up, maybe, is the way to look at it. But it's a threat to those who are in power at this time period. So they drag them to the city officials, and it causes this whole scene to occur. What's interesting, though, is this isn't the only riot that happens in the book of Acts. In fact, in the book of Acts, there are six different riots that occur 
as a part of this story that we read about in this book. One of the uh, Anglican bishop I read and came across recently this week said it this way, everywhere St. Paul went, there was a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. You can tell he's British, right? Because it'd be sweet tea here or something, right? But you get the picture. You get the image, don't you? Everywhere the Christians went early on, there was a riot. They were turning the world upside down. And yet, when's the last time we needed crowd control at church, right? We, we've, we've come to just kind of expect a, a status quo, and the resurrection has stopped changing our lives in the way that it should at times. So how did Christianity get this reputation? How do we become to be seen as these people who kind of maintain things as they are rather than being people who are revolutionaries for the kingdom of God? Well, there's a couple things I believe about Jesus. I believe that Jesus came and the resurrection assures us eternal life. That's a key part of what he came to do. But Jesus came to do more than that. He came to revolutionize this world and change things today. Jesus was a revolutionary. In fact, there's a quote that I wanted to share with you this morning. I shared it on social media this week. It's a question I've been kind of, kind of birthed this sermon, I guess, this morning. So it's a quote from Yaroslav Pelikan, and this is what he has to say. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, and imagine this image with me, of some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Do you have the image with me? The impact that Jesus has made in the world, the impact Jesus' followers has made in this world. If you were able to take a a super magnet and you were able to pull out all those traces of the impact of the Jesus movement over 2,000 years, what would the world look like? And I would submit to you this morning, it would look far different than it does today. So that's the question I want to talk about for the rest of this message. What would look different about our world if Jesus had never come to the earth? I believe that Jesus changed the world more than any other person who's ever lived. And that may not come as a shock to many of you, that answer, because most of you, if you come to church and you've been in church for a while, the answer to every question in church is Jesus if you don't know it, right? So let's throw that out there. It's Jesus, right? And I believe this is true, and you might as well. But I want you to think about how how odd that is given the life and the history of who Jesus was as he lived on the earth. Jesus was a Jewish man who lived for 30 years, 33 years, and never traveled outside of an area the size of New Jersey. Jesus is just, he's a footnote in the record books of an empire that put thousands of criminals to death on a crosses. In a sense, he was a nobody in that story, in that time. But as the story grows and as the church grows, we begin to realize this nobody change the world. I love how Francis, uh, James Francis, who's a, uh, an African-American preacher from the last century, sums up the life of Jesus. Listen to this. This comes alive in a whole new way. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He, he grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home, never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was done, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 
19 long centuries have come and gone, and today he's the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I'm far within my mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Can I get an amen this morning? That's who we worship. Now this morning, I want to talk about this impact, about this, again, just one man, 33 years, fully God, fully man. Don't hear me saying he's not divine. But this is a human life. And often we think about the divine elements of who Jesus is. I want to talk about the human elements of Jesus this morning and the impact he made on the earth. So this morning, I'm giving you permission to do something I don't do most mornings. Why don't you take out your smartphone right now, okay? And what I want to show you is how this smartphone actually reveals the glory of God in a way you've ne- maybe never seen before. And by the way, if there's those red circles with numbers in them, try to avoid them. You know, I know the email is easy to, to get into right now. But I want to take you to a few of your apps and, and show you the glory of God this morning. Steve Jobs might not have defined, you know, designed the iPhone for this, but I think there's something there. First of all, go to, go to Google Maps because we all know that Apple Maps doesn't work. So, and I'm an iPhone guy, right? Go to Google Maps. And I want you to look at some of the cities uh, around Texas perhaps, but I'd really like you to focus on the left coast, the west coast. Uh, and, and I want you to just look around at some of those cities, because here's what's interesting. In the ancient world, commanders and powerful people were able to name cities after themselves. Alexandria was named after Alexander the Great. Caesarea was named after uh, Caesar Augustus. So that's what they would do. They would name a city after themselves, so they'd always be remembered. So even today, uh, we remember people because of the cities that were named after them. But if you were to look up the coast of California, it's interesting, because there's some key cities that are named after followers of Jesus. There's Santa Barbara. You may not know the story of Santa Barbara. Barbara was a saint who was named after, or I'm sorry, who was beheaded by her father for following Jesus. We see that happening in our world today, but this is the truth of the past as well. San Jose is a city that's named after Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. San Francisco is named after one of the saints you may have heard of, St. Francis, uh, who was an incredible story of, of, of a man who lived with poverty, who gave up all earthly goods in order to live a, a radical life of discipleship. Uh, Sacramento, you may not know the story on that, but Sacramento is close to the word sacrament, right? Which is this gift of grace that we get to experience. The Lord's Supper is reminded as we look up the coast of California and in a little bit, little bit to Sacramento. Here are these cities that are named after famous saints. They got their names from followers of Jesus. Jesus never named a city. would have been ridiculous to think that he could have named a city, this guy who died. But here we see in our Maps app, an example of the glory of God. Turn over uh, to a different app uh, with me. Go to your calendar app right now, okay? Your calendar app. Now, I know that, that may get you freaked out about what you got going on this week and all that's ahead, but I want you to realize that powerful regimes have tried to establish their dominance by changing the calendar and dating it in certain ways around their reign. And the idea of Jesus trying to like re- rework the calendar around his life would have been laughable in the Roman Empire. But every time today we glance at a calendar or we date a check, we're reminded chronologically at least of the life of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus' life isn't marked that way. It's marked by the reign of those who are in power. In fact, the the Gospel of Luke talks about this. Open with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. I just want to show you a few brief passages about how Jesus' life is marked in relation to time. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. 
So we see the story begins talking about John the Baptist, who's preparing the way for Jesus. How? It defines the time period by looking at Herod of Judea. This is how you know what time it is. This is a historical event that actually happened. Turn over to chapter 2 with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Again, chapter 2 is the story of Jesus and his birth. And how is it marked? It's marked by the rulers at the time. Caesar Augustus, Governor Quirinius. Chapter 3, verse 1. Pay attention again. In the 15th year, when, when did this happen? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. Hey, there's a shout out for some of you. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The story of Jesus is told in relation to the reign of rulers who are in power in the Roman Empire. And on and on it goes. In the history books, Jesus is a mere footnote in the reign of other rulers. But if you look at the tombstone of some of those rulers, what you'll find is interesting. Because how it's dated is relation, in relation to the time Jesus was born. Caesar Nero died in the year of our Lord, 68. Napoleon, the emperor of the world, died in the year of our Lord, 1821. Joseph Stalin died in the year of our Lord, 1953. These people may have tried to deny Jesus was real, or they may have been atheistic di- dictators, but the truth is when history dates them, it dates them according to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. The fact remains that 2,000 years after the birth of this carpenter, every time a person opens a newspaper or opens their app or is reminded of the date, they're reminded of this man who lived on the earth that changed everything. Jesus never tried to define a calendar, but every time we open, every time we write the year, we're reminded of Jesus of Nazareth. Go to your clock app for a moment where you maybe set your alarms. You know the history of the clock and how it was invented? Mechanical clocks were first invented by monks and monasteries. And what was the problem they were trying to come up with or, or trying to fix? Well, they pray uh, prayers by the hours throughout the day. In order to stay on time and to make sure they said the prayers they were called to pray in their life that they called themselves to, they needed clocks in order to know what time it was in the morning and the evening all throughout the day. So your clock app is a reminder of Christians who were followers of Jesus who wanted to connect with their Lord. And the reason that they were able to connect with Him is they were able to tell time in this way in this new thing. Some of you still today, you'll set alarms to remind yourself of praying or reminding to think of someone during the day or write a note. Those alarms are exactly what the early monks did to remind themselves to connect with God. Check your weather app right now. It's really good news this week. There's good weather coming, right? And some of you are going, yeah, well, that's great. It says that, but we know that if I did my job as poorly as meteorologists did, I wouldn't have a job for long. But what's interesting about Jesus, right, is uh, the meteorologists of his day, (laughs) they could have put weather reports out there, but all it took was Jesus speaking one word to change the weather. And as we think about our world, we we think that we can tell time, we think we can tell weather in our own ways, but God's the one who controls the nations. God's the one who's in control of all these things. Even weather in that app is a reminder that we're not in control as much as Jesus is. Now, Now turn with me, if you would, on your apps to... Uh, your phone app, you may not remember that your phone actually makes calls by what we do on our phones, right? Go to that, that contacts list that you have in your phone. I, just scroll through it real quick, all the way A to Z, and I want you to pay attention. What are the most uh, 
common names that you have in, in your list. And your list, list might look different than mine, but as I, took, I did my top list, and it got to this many, and this is what I, this is what I noticed about the, the most names on my list. Uh, Chris, David, John, Joshua, Mark, Michael, Stephen, and Timothy. The top nine names in terms of most prevalence are all names of people who come from Scripture who were followers of Jesus. I said this joke a few uh, weeks, uh, weeks ago, but it's too good not to say again, right? And we name our pizza joints and our dogs after Caesar and Nero. But we name our children after characters in Scripture. And I, I love that reminder that even when we open up our phone and our apps and our contacts, that God is there. Open your iTunes app for a moment. Look at the various music that you bought over the years or whatever stations you listen to most. I want you to pay attention because the reality about music is if it weren't for Gregorian chant, there would have been never been Justin Bieber. And some of you are thinking, man, they should have never started with Gregorian chant, right? But I think, I mean, from hip-hop artists like Kanye West to country singers like Carrie Underwood who sing about Jesus in their songs, it was because of people trying to put to words the psalms. It was because of people putting this music into play. What we're doing this morning, still singing today, is a result of uh, Christians who wanted to get out their praise to God. Check out your book app, or maybe your Kindle or Nook, or maybe another app you've got that you read books on. What's interesting about Jesus is Jesus never wrote a book, and yet there's been no one who have had more books written about them than Jesus. The record of Jesus' life and his teachings, the Gospels, have been impacted the world so much, the Bible, that the Bible's been translated now, and I may be off now because it keeps going, but it's up to 2,527 languages that have the Gospels translated in them. Think about that. The second most translated book is the book Don Quixote, which is in 60 languages. In fact, I was looking at the, the Guinness Book of World Records. It said the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Second best-selling book, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, is, and I'm not kidding, the Guinness Book of World Records, which is a little fishy to me, right? But it was Christians who were, who were these preservers of classical documents. It was Christians for years. Christian missionaries have actually developed languages in writing because these were oral languages, and they would create a way to write those things down. And why? So they could tell the story of Jesus and preserve that for that culture once they left. Think about pioneer Bible translators and others like them, that that's their, their gift to the world. In fact, in probably the majority of languages, the first proper name that was translated because of all this work is the name Jesus. It's just incredible when you think about all this, and yet Jesus never wrote a book. Turn to your Bible app for a moment, maybe you version or another that you read from. Many of you read the Bible more often on your phone or tablet than you do actually a uh, paper copy, right? Uh, but this is amazing what uh, God has done in our hands. And we take this for granted because the reality is people died to bring this text to us. The, the first time they translated books so that people could actually have them in their homes and not just off where priests would read them alone, People died. John Huss, read the story about him later today. In order that we can have this, and we take this for granted, but we got to realize amazing things have been done to be able to preserve Scripture so that we could read it. Now, I've talked about your, your phone for a moment. I believe your iPhone declares the glory of God. That your iPhone points you to Jesus. But back to this image about the super magnet, and if you were to remove all these traces, what would be left? Think about all these different worlds that would be different if it weren't for Jesus. What's interesting about Jesus is most people, when they die, that there's usually uh, famous people. They have a period of time where we learn about their life, but usually their influence begins to wane after their death, right? But with Jesus, it's just the opposite. He dies, and hardly anybody knows about it. 
But after 100 years, so many more people know. And after 500 years, all of a sudden there's this church and things have changed in culture. After 1,000 years, the foundations of Europe are being built by Christians who want to share this story. And 2,000 years later, we're still telling this story because of him. Uh, but think about the world uh, of art, for instance. How would art be different were it not for Jesus? Isn't it interesting? No one knew what Jesus looked like, but don't we all know what Jesus looked like? Now, the artistic rendering is a little more Caucasian than he really was, let's be honest, right? It's interesting what we do with Jesus to make him in our own image rather than allow us to be formed in his. But we all know that picture of Jesus. In fact, Jesus is probably more well-known in terms of depiction rather than even the Mona Lisa. And yet we have no description of what he looks like. And that's the power of art over the centuries. Without uh, Christians and followers of Jesus in the world of art, there'd be no Sistine Chapel. There'd be no Da Vinci's Last Supper. There'd be no Rembrandt's Prodigal Son. Take Jesus' impact out of the world and imagine how education would be a different story. Jesus never wrote a book, but his movement cared about education. From monasteries to universities to literacy movements throughout the world, it's been Christians that have educated people and seen it as part of their calling. Why do you think they call university educators professors? Because in the original universities that were planted, they were professing their faith in Jesus Christ. At Oxford, at Cambridge, at Harvard, at Yale. In fact, all but one school started before uh, the... Make sure I get this right. All but one school started before the American Revolution was started to serve the Jesus movement. 92% of the first 138 colleges and universities in North America were founded by followers of this uneducated, itinerant, never-wrote-a-book carpenter. Sunday school. I don't know if you know the history of Sunday school or not, but Sunday school was started by a guy named Robert Rakes in 1780. And it was started because so many of the children in that time period were working six days a week without child labor laws, but they would hopefully get at least one day off. And the thought was, if we could provide Sunday school for them in an entirely volunteer culture, we could educate these kids so they might have hope for the future. It's interesting today, now it's like a selective class for our own kids. This is from the story of Jesus. This was originally started by volunteers. And it's amazing, the work of that movement. It was one of the great achievements of modern history when it comes to volunteer movements. Within 50 years of Robert Rakes beginning this organization called Sunday School, there were 1.5 million children being taught by 160,000 volunteer teachers who had a vision for the education of the next generation. Take Jesus' impact out of our world and architecture would be a different story. Jesus had no place to lay his head, but how many buildings have been built in honor of Jesus to tell his story? Without Jesus and his followers, there'd be no Notre Dame, there'd be no St. Paul's, there would be no La Sagrada Familia, which is an amazing story about a church that's being finished finally after about 100 years of being built in Barcelona, Spain. There'd be no storefront churches in Watts and in China. Take Jesus' impact out of the world and care for the sick and diseased would look very different. That magnet would remove organizations like the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, World Vision, YMCA, Samaritan's Purse, Compassion International, and yes, even leper colonies. It was Mark Nelson, a philosopher, who said it this way. If you ask, what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion? I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely and for practical welfare of the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Or maybe you know the story of a secular British curmudgeon named Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm uh, visited India the Missionaries of Charity Leprosarium, where Mother Teresa and others worked for years. 
And when he saw Mother Teresa in action, he realized with a force of sudden insight that atheists don't run leprosariums, followers of Jesus who have a whole different mindset and value set. Take Jesus' impact out of the world and children wouldn't be treated near as well. In the ancient world, children were expendable and disposable. Abortion and infanticide were normalized and acceptable practices. Not only was the exposure of infants a very common practice seen as just the norm, it was justified by law and advocated by people like Plato and Aristotle. The Twelve Tables, which is uh, the earliest known Roman legal code around 450 B.C., permitted a father to expose any female infant and any deformed or weak male infant. And all this was common until along came a group of people about the 4th century and an emperor who happened to follow Jesus who outlawed this practice. And over time, instead of people leaving their infants on dung hills and in city dumps, they would drop them off unwanted on churches and cathedrals because they knew these people would care when others wouldn't. And today, though we still have a ways to go, the situation is very different. Today, parents have something of a, an obsessive compulsive disorder about our kids. Maybe we've gone overboard. But I'm grateful for the impact of Jesus saying, let the little children come to me. This changed forever, the impact of what it means to be people who care for children. In fact, G.K. Chesterton once wrote that the elevation and dignity of childhood would have made no sense to the ancients. Something happened in the 4th century, and that something was Jesus and his impact on an emperor who had an impact on an entire society. Uh, Anytime you see an adoption agency or you see an orphanage or you see someone caring for special needs kids, that wouldn't be the case and it wouldn't be there if it weren't for Jesus and his call to change the way we view children and those of all abilities and levels. Take Jesus' impact out of the world and our treatment of women would be very different than it is today. And this is a misnomer about the church. Many people assume Jesus didn't improve the treatment of women, but I would disagree. In fact, the the growing movement of, of followers of Jesus early on grew with women much more than it did men early on. There was something about a change to society and how things were going. In fact, his treatment of the Samaritan woman in John 4 challenged all the social mores of his time. And one of his followers, the Apostle Paul, went on to write some words that I don't think we've still felt the full impact of and may not live out as fully as Paul intended. Listen to this. This is Galatians uh, chapter 3. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That verse is thought to be the first statement of egalitarianism in human literature. Now, we've still got a ways to go. There's all kinds of places all over the world where women are pushed aside and not called up, and I think this is something the church needs to continue to call for. But Jesus' impact was what began and planted the seeds for this. Uh, Think about virtue for a moment. Virtue changed as a result of Jesus. Humility was not a virtue that the Roman ancient world saw as something to be upheld. You bragged about what you did. You were grateful for the great things you did. And if you were above others, you made sure to make sure they knew that you were above them. In fact, the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet is the first example in that time period of anyone of an upper class or above someone else uh, stooping to actually wash the feet of someone below them. The Greeks knew that great, what greatness is, and for them, greatness didn't involve humility. It was philosopher Alistair McIntyre noted that humility was not considered a virtue in that world. Aristotle's great-souled man is extremely proud. He despises honors offered by the common people. 
He indulges in conspicuous consumption. For he likes to own beautiful and useless things since they're better marks of his independence. Jesus made humility a virtue. He also made forgiveness a virtue that wasn't known before. Forgiveness as we know it was, did not exist in ancient Greece or Rome. People didn't pray, pray prayers to God for their forgiveness or definitely the forgiveness of others. Fierce loyalty to your friends and fierce opposition to your enemies was the way of the Roman Empire. The gods were there to help you to get what you wanted. And if you got what you wanted, it was to get even with whoever had caused harm to you. Forgiveness and love of enemies is a distinctively Christian contribution to the human race. Hannah Arendt, the first woman appointed to a full professorship at, at Princeton, who said, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. I could go on and on about the impact of Jesus and his followers. The one book that's been real helpful as I've studied this topic is the book, Who Is This Man? by a guy named John Ortberg that you may have read other stuff. It's a wonderful book on the impact of Jesus and his movement. I want to close with a quote that he puts in his book about the impact. One day, however it happened, John writes, Jesus invited Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him. What would our world be like if it had not done that? At the end of their time together, they had not caused much of a stir. You could have been there on the day after he died. If you could have seen the Roman Empire with its Pax Romana, its 250,000 miles of roads, and its extensions from Asia to Africa to Europe, and its history of dominance and its social status that was envied throughout the Mediterranean. And if you could have seen these few dozen frightened, demoralized, defeated, confused former followers of an executed carpenter, if someone had asked you to place a bet on which group would still be around 2,000 years, all the smart money would have been placed on the Roman Empire, which is as extinct as a dodo bird. I don't know if you've ever been to the Colosseum in Rome. In the Colosseum in Rome, there's this incredible thing that most people kind of bypass. No tour groups really talk much about it. But under the emperor's seat in the Colosseum, where the emperor would have always gone to sit, I remember this when we went there. I remember taking a picture and thinking about this. There's a cross that stands underneath that seat. Think about the world and how much it's changed. Think about the Roman Empire and how impossible it would have been to, to think that maybe this Jesus movement would have gotten off anywhere. Rome's in our history books, but the Jesus movement continues to thrive and move. It doesn't mean we're finished. It doesn't mean that we don't need to confess more and more the ways we hold back the progress God desires in our world because God's got a picture of his future heavens and earth, future new heavens and, and future new earth. And he prays in the, in, in, the, in the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. He may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which means we're not done. We continue to pray that prayer and God say, God, as much as you want to bring your reign in this world, would you bring it? Would you change the things that need to be changed? And I want to be a part of a church. I don't know about you. That believes the resurrection still changes things. It doesn't leave things as they are. The status quo is not okay when it comes to injustice. So whatever it is in your world, if you're an artist, what I want to tell you to do is keep creating art because it matters and the Jesus story keeps getting told. If you're an architect, Keep doing what you're doing for the kingdom of God because it actually matters. And people remember this far, long, far past your life. And if you're somebody who collects trash maybe or you clean up offices, I want to tell you, keep doing what you're doing because there are people who wouldn't dare do what you're doing but you're sacrificing in the way of Jesus. You ought to do it with excellence because it shows people the kingdom of God. If you're a teacher, keep educating your kids because those kids need to be educated so that they can go about the same change process that God brought to our world. God wants to change 
and revolutionize and turn this world upside down. But really, it's turning the world right side up, isn't it? Because as different as this way of life is, humility is a virtue we ought to hang on to. And mercy and forgiveness, this is the way we continue to show the world that God's at work. I hope today you leave with hope. hope today you leave not thinking about all the bad things the church has been a part of. We've got all those things, and we confess to them, and we've got to continue to grow. There's a lot of good that's going on. I'm thankful for Christians like Martin Luther King Jr., who was part of planting these seeds that changed our world. I'm grateful for so many people who are these modern revolutionaries that continue to shape and change because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we close our time together. God, thank you. Thank you for the artists. Thank you for the storytellers. Thank you for the teachers. Thank you for the medical professionals. Thank you for those who give up their lives, give up high pay so that they can show people what your kingdom is all about. Thank you for our missionaries who go a long ways off, God, to share this message. But God, remind us that we are missionaries. We're ambassadors of your kingdom. We show people and point people to the future, and we fascinate them about a world that's far different than the way the world is so often in our own day. So God, would you work through us? Would you continue to tell your story? Would you continue to remind us of Jesus who changes everything? We thank you for the resurrection. God, more and more we want to step into abundant life with all that that means. God, draw on us your Holy Spirit and continue to work out your gifts, God. We do it with fear and trembling, but we trust you're doing something in our world. It's the name of Jesus we pray.